This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Teaching is not just about conveying content. It's equally about how to read, how to think critically, how to ask certain kinds of questions, how to put your thinking into some kind of representational form or product, you know, whether it be writing or Mm -hmm. a practice-led product. And so I think in a lot of institutions, there's still really a focus on conveying content and having students learn that content and sort of accept it. So a very basic principle of what we're talking about here is not specific to decoloniality. It's also just specific to good critical teaching, good Mm -hmm. critical pedagogy, which is, you know, having students assess the content, the form of the content that they're, you know, that's being conveyed to them. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fawad Rahman and welcome to Night School, the show that explores concepts, theories and society. And we are joined this week by a really awesome panel. Uh, let me introduce all of them before we start talking about the topic of today, which is decolonial pedagogy and other related matters. We have with us, first and foremost, Pamela Corey. She is a lecturer in Southeast Asian Art at the uh, Department of History of Art and Archaeology at the uh, at SOAS, that's the School of Oriental and African Studies. Joining us as well is Ashley Thompson. She is also uh, teaching at the uh, SOAS and uh, at the History of Art and Ar- Archaeology, same department. Mm-hmm. And from Central St. Martins, from the Fine Art Department, is uh, Erica Tan. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank so, um, we should explain to our audience the occasion that brought you here. I mean, it's a very interesting opportunity to be able to engage with you in Malaysia. So uh, what's this trip about? Okay. Well, there was a call for applications for the Newton Mobility Grant, and it specified certain institutional partnerships, one of which was between a UK institution and a Malaysian institution. So I reached out to Simon and asked, you know, should we apply for this? And what should we do? Um, there is a focus in the call for applications on projects that would tie somewhat directly to industry sectors, cultural industries, economic industries. There was an emphasis on building capacity and resources. So Simon and I brainstormed some possibilities, and we wanted to do something that was academically rooted, but that had some practical implications, productive sort of practical outcomes. And so the practical outcome of this, hopefully, is to brainstorm ideas and hopefully, you know, exchange ideas about how to shape a new program of study at the University of Malaya, a BA in art history or something related, which would be quite a singular program of study within the region. Mm -hmm. And also speaks to a real need for this kind of educational formation and training, given that there's a kind of museum fever Mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia at the moment, but the training isn't really there, the curriculum isn't really there in Southeast Asia to, you know, build the staff. Mm -hmm. Um, And along those lines, thinking about curriculum and pedagogy, you can't separate that from scholarship and research. And 
it speaks to this idea of decoloniality as well, which is decentering, you know, the primary institutions of knowledge building, research, publication from Europe and the US. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about creating a site for knowledge production and dissemination outside of what has long been considered sort of the center. So that speaks to that impetus. But I think what's exciting for Simon and I too is how to rethink decoloniality in an art historical context. So contributing to the broader disciplinary question um, Mm -hmm. through the example of Southeast Asia, which is quite a rich source of materials that I think can contribute to that question. And then how can the question of a decolonial art history also contribute to, you know, Southeast Asian studies or Southeast Asian art history. Interesting. Mm-hmm. How would you define decoloniality, um, especially as the term colonial has been iterated many times in academia? You have post-colonial studies, which has mm-hmm. its own heritage, and you have uh, the anti-imperial discourse more broadly, you know, it's more rooted to the Marxist tradition maybe. So how would your definition of decoloniality be like in this context? I think the definition that we're working with is ties into Walter Mignolo. It speaks to decoloniality or the decolonial project as something ongoing and something actionable, something that is a process, more of a a verb. When we talk about post-colonial, it's almost a more descriptive term Mm -hmm. that can cite a historical period, you know, literally after colonialism has ended. It can also be something used to refer to a kind of intellectual movement or intellectual figure it asserts a kind of activist attitude in mm-hmm. scholarship or a kind of critical attitude. But to be decolonial, to try to enact decoloniality as an ongoing sort of project. Mm, interesting. Um, Erica, why is decoloniality a concern in art practice or art history? As artists, we're Certainly, I'm, I'm an artist based in, in London. I'm from Singapore originally. I flitter between kind of making work in Singapore. And I use lots of different terminology with kind of what I do. So transnational is is one thing. Decoloniality at the moment seems to be a bit of a buzzword. And it's providing maybe other tools for ways of thinking about things that aren't necessarily attached to the specifics of, of London, perhaps. I personally have been my own practice, I've used the word post-colonial a lot in my own work. And so there's this sort of shifting that takes place. I'm exploring it at the moment. But I think as practitioners, we're often finding, trying to find context for our work and ways of talking about it. So the more we're engaging with the possibilities of something that can put theory into action, I think it kind of brings a sort of, it makes it current in the work that you're making. Mm-hmm it's another way of thinking about what you do. Yeah. Um, Can you perhaps give us an example of what decolonial practice might be like in, in art making? Well, for me at the moment, I've been working in a long-term project around a particular figure, Halima Binti Abdullah, who was a weaver in the 1924 Empire Exhibition. And she came from Johor and went to London and participated there. And there's a whole sort of story around her. There's very little information, though, and there's mm. a lot of story making that I've made up about her. But one of the questions I've been asking is whether or not Halima could have a place in the National Gallery in Singapore that opened up two years ago and why she's seen as not being possible 
to be shown within mm-hmm. the National Gallery in her work. And partly because it comes down to this idea of what the visual is or what the modern is and that the modern is visual. This is what the curators have kind of been utilizing. And so there seems to be in a way a kind of continuity of colonial discourse and what is art and what's collectible and what was collected and the information that was collected and an ongoing inability to incorporate mm-hmm. certain voices or certain people. So for me, that's been interesting I haven't used decoloniality as a term within this practice, but in in many ways it's sort of feeding into those kind of discourses. Yeah, that's really interesting because when we think of colonialism or or imperialism, we think of institutions, we think of market dominance, we think of the military and conquest, but we don't think of art as necessarily featuring much in the so-called knowledge production of the colonial. So can you actually maybe draw a connection between you know, art, if the valuation of art on one hand and the colonial project more broadly, like historically, how has that worked together? I suppose I would answer that question by trying to think about different moments of, of the colonial. One thing that we we also discussed this morning is, or what is it that we call the colonial? Is it simply the European colonialism in the 19th century or in the 16th century, whatever moment you're coming into Southeast Asia? Or is it something that can be thought of in terms of other historical periods? I look particularly in my own work at questions of Indianization uh, early modes of what we might call colonialism. Um, we might not call them. How do we how do we define these kinds of cultural developments, which may have different iterations at different moments in time, not necessarily political, military, et cetera, but mm-hmm. cultural expansion, cultural transformations. Do we call that colonial? Or even more fundamentally, is there any culture that is short of the colonial? Mm-hmm. So that's how I might begin to answer your question, but I'll pass it over to my colleagues. Anybody else want to add to that? It has to do also with the institutionalization of our discipline and certain modes of art historiography that were very much predicated upon some of the institutions we're talking about, certain ways of looking at art, classifying it, hierarchizing it, certain systems of value. So yes, we're talking about institutions, markets, things like that. But how has knowledge production been integral to Mm. those things? Yeah. And, you know. What makes Southeast Asia unique as a region or as a kind of story of colonial experience? I think that's one of our questions. Is, <laughs> yes. uh, one of the big questions, obviously, is yeah. is Southeast Asia defined as a region and how is it defined as a region? And then to come back to our discipline or our questions, how does art participate in that definition? I think that's something we're certainly thinking about earlier in our conversations. You were talking about matrifocality as mm-hmm. being something perhaps distinctive to the region. Are there elements within matrifocality, if we think that did exist, does exist in some way, that are evidenced within art production? That would be the kind of question we would ask to try to get at this question of specificity. But we also rub up against that definition in many ways Mm -hmm. or resist that kind of definition in many ways. And part of the question that that I think Simon Soon and Pamela Corey have brought to the table for us is can we expand the borders of what we think of as Southeast Asia? Does it correspond to ASEAN? Mm -hmm. And how does our work within art history contribute to possible redefinition of the region per se? Yeah. Yeah, there's also, there's the question of European colonialism, American imperialism, and Japanese imperialism that have all been formative in the definition of the region, right? So Southeast Asia didn't really become Southeast Asia in the global imagination until Japan, until, I mean, Japanese occupation was that thing that sort of 
did away with the colonial boundaries of the different subregions and brought it all together as Southeast Asia. And then also this idea of what is the colonial and decolonial? What are the different permutations of this colonial, these residual colonial structures as they've been taken up by nationalism, you know, neocolonialism, mm-hmm. globalization, all these things. So maybe that's another difference between post-colonial and decolonial is the entity that we're citing as colonial is much more mm-hmm. protean in a sense mm-hmm. and something that we recognize as still pervasive and still very present. Right. Does the rise of China factor into how you understand coloniality or is it still largely a Western, Euro-American kind of focus? Historically, I mean, you could go back to, you know, first centuries BCE, if we want to talk about the Vietnamese national historiographical myth of having been occupied by China and Mm. the way that's shaped Vietnamese modern national identity. Um, How does that play into art historical narratives? We could talk about other forms of Chinese hegemony, Mm -hmm. you know, in the region, if it's perceived as such. And then in the current era, the growing force of China sort of supplanting the U.S. Mm -hmm. in many parts of Asia, right? And um, especially through the mechanisms of neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing about Southeast Asia for me personally, just the confluence of different interests and powers over thousands of years. It's always been an area of contestation. And the contestation hasn't really been resolved in, say, a lot of other different parts of the world, you know. The sphere of influence is still being redefined constantly as a result. Let's take a break for now and we'll return to the second part of the show where we can talk more about pedagogy, how that comes into play with some of the things we've touched on. I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat. Joining us this week are Pamela Corey, Erica Tan and Ashley Thompson, art historians and practitioners discussing about the discourse of decoloniality and its interesting potential future pedagogically as well in Southeast Asia. This is Night School on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to Night School. I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat, joined this week by art historians Ashley Thompson and Pamela Corey and art practitioner artists, but also a lecturer at Central St. Martin's, Erica Tan. And we are discussing decoloniality in Southeast Asia, trying to link politics, history and pedagogy and the future of the discourse here as it is taking shape amidst very interesting circumstances. We've talked largely about the context, but now I want to talk more about pedagogy. So where does decoloniality and pedagogy converge, the concerns? So the general objective of decolonial knowledge production and dissemination is to, let's say, just destabilize certain canons and also destabilize the hegemony of certain systems of knowledge that maybe maybe we call Western, I guess. That's sort of the predominant way of thinking about it. And how do we bring other systems of knowledge to bear on what we know and how we teach these things? Mm-hmm. So it's about bringing those things into dialogue with each other, you know, creating a bridge between them, but also just bringing more visibility to certain systems of knowledge and thinking that have long been kind of marginalized Mm -hmm. because of, you know, certain colonial structures of knowledge. So how do we do that in our teaching? I think it's about putting things in dialogue with each other for students. So let's say it's assigning a text by 
a very well-known Western theorist, you know, putting that into dialogue with something that, you know, responds to it from a different context or subject position that shows students how these things engage with each other, Mm. showing them both sides of the equation. It's also about, you know, teaching is not just about conveying content. It's equally about how to read, how to think critically, how to ask certain kinds of questions how to put your thinking into some kind of representational form or product, you know, whether it be writing or Mm -hmm. a practice-led product. And so I think in a lot of institutions, there's still really a focus on conveying content and having students learn that content and sort of accept it. So a very basic principle of what we're talking about here is not specific to decoloniality. It's also just specific to good critical teaching, good Mm -hmm. critical pedagogy, which is, you know, having students assess the content, the form of the content that they're, you know, that, yeah. that's being conveyed to them. Yeah. And it's interesting too that you said that the target is in a way to rethink the canon, right? Or how the canon was formed, right? What were the assumptions of knowledge that went into deciding that something should be a classic or something should be, you know, read and reread and reinterpreted. Um, in Malaysia, the interesting thing is that, uh, and this can be read in different ways, that a lot of the discussions about decolonial they didn't use the word decolonial but they do talk about you know finding alternatives to knowledge a western knowledge or sometimes even purifying western mm-hmm. knowledge because a lot of that discourse taken over by islamism so the idea here is that the west has been hegemonic in terms of the kind of sciences is brought the kinds of uh, economic logic that it's spread and there is this tendency to want to cleanse knowledge, right? And I know that's not what you're going for, because I think you're aiming for a more critical inclusivity. But this seems to be a very dominant agenda, at least in Malaysia, in mm-hmm. terms of what the options are in the, in the public, you know. So that's an interesting development for me in that as an educator here, I can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I see equally problematic assumptions in that outlook as well, you know. It's like the strong reaction that that is very sensitive to anything, quote unquote, Western or modern, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would just point out that what you're describing indicates that the decolonial agenda can also be a colonizing agenda, and mm-hmm. one needs to right. be consciously working or with mm-hmm. that question. A couple of things. I think something that we're trying to think about is to enable students and ourselves at the same time to detect, to analyze how power structures are embedded in the materials that we're working with, be they secondary materials, be they primary source materials. So not simply the West is bad, let's get rid of it, and let's focus on local voices, but let's look at how power structures are functioning. That might be an East-West thing, that might be a China-Vietnam thing, that Mm -hmm. might be a male-female thing, that might be some class issue that's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, But can can we detect that, and can we think critically about that work within the materials? I just wanted also to add a point to what um, what Pamela was saying in response to your first question about pedagogies, how another very interesting question, I think, that we bring to the classroom right now, and as I could understand it from our conversations this morning, which play themselves out within classrooms at the university here as well, is getting students from very different backgrounds into dialogue with each other. So folks who come into the classroom with lots of baggage from, let's say, in my classroom, from a traditional art historical program in Thailand or in Cambodia, Mm -hmm. which is on the order of a 
a colonial art historical program still functioning within those institutions in those countries. Coming into a SOAS classroom with that kind of knowledge, which is, it's a lot of knowledge, mm. a lot of knowledge that comes to the classroom. They also have knowledge, local knowledge, as it might be called, from use of the materials, from exposure on a daily basis to the materials that we're looking at. Those folks are coming into conversation with somebody who's had a background in Western art history or a strong background in theoretical work in the postmodern, mm -hmm. uh, coming out of a complete department somewhere, they're meeting. Mm -hmm. They're meeting in a London classroom and they're, how do we work with those different bodies of knowledge and how do we get them into dialogue with each other? That's something that I think we're all asking. And as far as I can tell at the University and Simon's department here as well, there is a lot of interaction of that order. How do we put these different forms of knowledge into exchange with each other and come out with something new? Mm -hmm. I think I need to add something just as a practitioner and, and teaching within a fine art department that we don't have classrooms, we have studios. And one of the things we're doing, I suppose, in terms of systems of knowledge is also rethinking what research is so that research isn't something that is done in the library through the process of reading, but there is a possibility of doing research within the studio, which is practice orientated. And how do, how do these two things inform each other? And maybe one of the things thinking about interdisciplinarity is how does the practice of making work affect or is affected by art history, mm -hmm. because I think those two things are really hand in hand, but often don't get sort of explored. And as a practitioner, sometimes we make art history, but we don't have this dialogue necessarily with art historians that are making art history in another kind of um, producing certain kinds of knowledge. Um, and we might be producing knowledge, but not actually speaking to each other. Interesting. So the conversation is very important, right? And mm. the, like the example you gave is not so much the knowledge production, but making sure that certain conversations that otherwise would not happen, mm. happen, right? Mm. Yeah. Malaysia is an interesting example in that we've had multinational, I guess, branded educational institutions uh, set up camp here. Nottingham, where I teach, being one, but also Newcastle is in Johor. Sunderland is opening up soon. And the uh, Arab universities are also active mm. here. So Medina University has a campus in Shah Alam. And uh, Manipal University, which is a big Indian university, has branches here as well. So over the past 20 years, Malaysia has positioned itself as a global education hub. And I've had the experience of teaching in these contexts. And the interesting thing is that while English is used as part of the globalization, the pressure to identify with just one culture isn't very strong. In the sense where if I were studying in the US, there's a default sort of whiteness that has to be recognized when I speak the language or when I'm in the classroom. There's something already established about being white or being Western that I sort of have to position myself in. Whereas in Malaysia, I can have a classroom of Arabs, of Indians, of Indo-Chinese and Malaysians in the same room using the language, but without necessarily being anchored to the institution being white necessarily because it's in Malaysia. You know, So I found that a very interesting kind of experimental ground for the kinds of things that we talk about because everybody's coming in from different perspectives in Malaysia, despite being a Western institution, still managing its own cultural dynamic, you know. Mm -hmm. So so that's interesting. A lot, a lot of what you described just now, I can kind of relate to my own experience, you know, because this goes back to the the earlier conversation we had about Southeast Asia's current historical circumstance, right? Being in the in the middle of all these 
meeting cultures. Mm. Yeah, so just one example there. I, I think there's there's a clear historical distinction between, let's say, the U.S. university and the Malaysian universities, as, as you're describing them now. But I think, again, sort of maintaining attentiveness to the heterogeneity of each of those situations, you'd have to really think carefully about which American university you're looking at in mm-hmm. what city. Mm-hmm. SOAS is a, is a strange beast because, of course, it is London establishment, mm-hmm. uh, London colonial establishment. At the same time, the classrooms are just bubbling with people from all over. Mm-hmm. I run Southeast Asian art classes, and it's rare that I have more than, I don't know, one or two white Europeans or Euro-Americans in my class of 30 people. Mm-hmm. They're from all over. They're not from the UK. Mm-hmm. So... They're not from Europe and they're not from America. So what does that mean? It means something different than what you're describing in Malaysia because Mm -hmm. it's not the the branch institution. It's Mm -hmm. not the displaced colonial institution yet. Yeah. It's not simply the colonial institution either. Yeah. So at what point, though, can we divorce knowledge from power, right? Because I think uh, one example you gave was to say that, you know, to look at how power works in knowledge production, right? To look at how... Maybe we can make the conversations and dialogue more inclusive as to unsettle established hierarchies, right? But knowledge is always about a certain acquisition, quote-unquote, right? I mean, I don't want to be petty about it, but do you draw that distinction between knowledge and power at some point in order for decoloniality to work? Well, this is displacing your question, but I think one thing to point out in a mix is that with the neoliberal transformation of the university, let's say, in Europe at the moment, knowledge is not power, Management is power. Right, right. I guess it, you have to define what kind of power right. you're talking about. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't know if this really has a bearing on your question, but I think it's also about shaking up the center. Okay, so it's not just about creating a voice, creating more of a presence through alternative spaces and sort of additional spaces, but it's about getting those presence those presences, those voices into the central platforms and shaking it up from within, yeah. right? The tricky thing is that power is always mutating too and the center is always yeah. shifting, right? And mm-hmm. it's nice to start with certain precepts like capitalism is at work, patriarchy is at work, racism is at work. But then like you say, in cases like you describe, those general descriptions fade really fast when you get to the particularities of it. So how do you make power stay still, for example, for lack of a better mm-hmm. expression, so that you can kind of take it on, you know, like, what does that look like, you know, being able to call out power in this process, you know? Mm. Well, I think that's maybe at the heart of, you know, why we're using this term decolonial, mm. you know, like we said before, whatever it is that we are targeting or citing is protean and always shifting mm-hmm. and in process. And we have to be attentive to those shifting structures and forms. You know, how do we be attentive to it? I don't know if I have like a tangible sort of method for that, but it's, I don't know, suggestions. No, absolutely. I'm just doing our work. At the same time, you have to make, I think, an artificial decision that now is a time where I'm going to call out, I'm going to make that power stay still and I'm going to expose it. And I'm going to point out the inequalities that are at work here. Of course, that's artificial, but of course, it's it's necessary at the same time. Yeah, and one has to do that and then move on. 
That's true. And I think I like that phrase, artificial decision, in that as instructors in a classroom, we have to make those decisions a lot <laughs> because we have power, but at the same time, we do want to quote-unquote equalize it to the extent possible. And we have to make those decisions, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your own practice then as educators? And maybe there's certain rules of thumb or certain approaches that you have, you know, to make, you know, because educators have power, right? We grade, we legitimize what's right and wrong in the discussions. We create spaces, we close spaces, you know, at, at mm-hmm. times. So maybe as, a, as part of your concluding thoughts, share a little bit about your own pedagogical strategies when it comes to decoloniality. I wouldn't put this under decoloniality as such, but certainly the idea of destabilizing kind of fixed narratives of a medium specificity is something that we do. The idea of contingency is constantly coming up in the making of work. So the idea also, you know, when you say that we say something's right or wrong, I think we drive our students absolutely crazy by trying to refrain from doing that. And they so desperately want us to say, hey, that was great, you got it right. And they're never really walking away with that kind of confirmation from our the tutors. This is in the context of fine art. And that's not to say that isn't being done within the critical studies department, but in the studio, there's a real necessity for leaving something inconclusive and still able to change and fluid the next time round. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. Interesting. Um, I think maybe I mentioned some of this already. I mean, my pedagogical approach fits within the decolonial project, but I just feel like what I'm trying to do is encourage critical pedagogy, critical learning. So that's much broader. And, but, you know, like I said before, you know, the way I assign readings is to have students read various works by different voices in conversation with each other and to be very attentive to the conversation or dialogue that's taking place see in what ways it can generate sort of points of inquiry, trying to get students to ask questions and to really assess the form of what they're being taught, you know, the form in which knowledge is being conveyed to them, trying to balance concerns of the discipline with broader interdisciplinary concerns. So creating a bridge from the specificities of whether it be, you know, Southeast Asian modern art to broader sort of disciplinary questions about modernism or to the construction of Southeast Asian studies as a, you know, sort of a subfield of area studies. Um, yeah. Cool. I'll just add to that the question of the of imposter syndrome. I think many, many students in our classrooms today feel that they don't belong there. <laughs> the university has opened up and people feel they're walking into establishment that is not theirs. And enabling students not to preface their thoughts with, I think I'm wrong, but I'm thinking this, but to enable them to think that the fact that they are thinking, if they're able to engage in critical thinking in the classroom, then that's right. Mm -hmm. And they can feel good about themselves and about what they're doing there. Interesting, interesting stuff. A lot of our show is really a teaser into the topic because it's half an hour, we have to wrap up soon. But as a follow-up, what can you suggest to our listeners, you know, should they want to look up some of the texts that are relevant to the things you're saying. So you, you talked about Walter Minolo earlier. Mm. Yeah, is there a text in mind that you would recommend to listeners as a way to kind of pursue their interest in this question? Well, I think a good entry point text, one that I assign in teaching, is a text that he's written with reference to a specific artwork. So it helps kind of provide a nutshell synopsis of his theory of decoloniality, it defines his terms, then illustrates the theory through his 
discussion of an artwork. Um, and that artwork is Fred Wilson's Mining the Museum. Hmm. And at the title of his the exact title of his article is escaping me right now, but you could Google it. Sure, you know, sure. Walter Mignolo, Fred Wilson, Mining the Museum. Cool. We're building a bibliography, aren't we, that you you want yes. to share at some point? Yes. So we so. are, you know, we at the moment we're really sure. talking about this project, what we want the outcomes to be and what, you know, the fact that we want this, the materials that come out of this to be open access and, you know, we want to disseminate it to the public. And one of the things we want to work on is a, a bibliography. So we will... Be working on that and we'll make it available at some point. Sure, yeah. and you can share the link to the show and we'll post it on our Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other yeah. titles come to mind? I'm all for deconstruction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I keep thinking about Trinti Minha's work. Ah, okay, but cool. I'm not sure. I think she's really right. important to read. Um, yeah. so sure. so, yeah, frame. that's another name to Google. Yeah. yeah. Plenty of stuff online yeah. about her. Yeah. I would just add to I mean something we mentioned or I mentioned earlier in discussions is that you know, decoloniality is not all about Walter Mignolo. And we sure. can look within all of our areas of study to find precursors or, mm-hmm. you know, other forms of theory that provide a rigorous foundation for, you know, this, let's say, this specific trajectory of thinking that we call decoloniality. But within Southeast Asian art history, I think someone like Stan O'Connor, who was the first professor of Southeast Asian art history appointed at an American university, was doing this kind of work long ago. So even, you know, his articles, writings from the 1980s, you know, are bringing to bear these approaches. All right. Awesome. So look up those names I have in mind. I mean, since we talked about pedagogy, Paulo Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm-hmm. good primer into a lot of the concerns that we have, you know, especially going against a quote-unquote banking mode of knowledge that's dominating the education industry. But thanks so much for joining the show. Erica Tan, Pamela Corey and Ashley Thompson sharing your knowledge. Now we can post links to your respective websites, department websites on the Facebook page so they can follow your work afterwards. But thanks so much again. You can email the show at bfmnightschool at gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook, type BFM Night School at the search space or download our app at the Apple App Store and Google Play. I'm Ahmad Farama and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.